I invite you now to please take God's word and follow along as I read today's scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, The famous author H.G. Wells uh, famously called it the war to end all wars. World War I was suffering and savagery like had never been seen before. One of the worst battles uh, in all of the war was called the Battle of Verdun. And and the Battle of Verdun was mainly fought between the French and the Germans, but others uh, contributed as well. uh, the, The Battle of Verdun raged from February to December of 1916, Uh, If you ask those who survived it, they said it was nine months, three weeks, and six days of the most terrible conditions in human history. Constant shooting, constant artillery bombardment, shells exploding everywhere nonstop. Uh, The numbers are are, are really impossible to figure out in terms of of what was spent there and, and the, you know, the amount of guns, the amount of bombs and shells and, and that were spent during that time. And, and when it was over, and there really was no winner of the Battle of Verdun, both sides just basically decided to leave because the winter was getting too cold. Um, there was just atrocity everywhere. I want to show you just a few pictures of what Verdun looked like in the aftermath of it. Experts say that both sides lost over 300,000 men killed. Each, each lost 300,000. And 1.25 million in overall casualties. That's 125,000 casualties a month. Just think about that. In the filthiest, scariest environment possible. Well, it's, it's been over 100 years since the ending of the Battle of Verdun. And I want to show you something that's hard to believe. Uh, I, I want to show you just a part of the, of the landscape of Verdun today. It, it, you see, there were so many bombs, so much lead, so much poison gas, that the land is still considered a no-man's land. In fact, the French government has marked off 42,000 acres that are still completely uninhabitable and, not, and, and you are not allowed to go into them still to this day. Those pictures you saw weren't of no man's land of, the, uh, uh, st- of those 42,000 acres. This is still some of the other parts. 
It's still so toxic in that area that you cannot drink the water. You can't eat things like mushrooms, anything that grows from the ground. Meat like, uh, from game like deer or boar, can't eat it. Uh, farmers, uh, anything that was to grow, you, you can't eat it. It's still so poisonous, still so toxic. Um, they have these areas in, the, in this part of France listed uh, as uh, yellow zones, green zones, uh, and then the red zone. And the red zone, you're still not allowed to live. The government will not let you live in the red zone. Um, there are farmers who still try to live in the yellow zone and the green zone, but there's a cost. Uh, as you saw from that, can you go back a couple of pictures? Maybe the first one, I think, is what first one of it. Yeah, right there. Uh, Farmers die every year when their plows, when their equipment hit buried, unexploded ordnance. Every year they have what the French call the the iron harvest, and, and farmers pull up about 900 tons of unexploded shells every year. 900 tons in this area every year. And, and they're told, hey, to just bring it to this area, and we'll come and take care of them. Don't mess with them yourselves, but, you know, transport them to this. And so that's what you see, that picture of those men sitting on them. Those guys are part of the cleanup crew. There is a whole agency of the, of the French government that is tasked with cleaning the area, uh, the region around Verdun. It's been 100 years, they estimate. It will take another 700 years to actually clean it all up to where it won't be uh, uh, a danger to be in that zone. They say 10,000 years is what it will take for the chemicals to actually be cleared out of the soil where where things would be edible again. 10,000 years based on what has happened in this place. Can we go back to that... uh, uh, one of those, the very early pictures of, of, the, uh, of the ravages of, of the Battle of Verdun. Yeah, perfect. This morning, I want you to keep that image in your mind. I want, I want you to see that image. This image of devastation, of barren trees. This will be the vision of Israel. And it is the vision of the world before the Messiah. Isaiah is going to give us a dual vision this morning. <clears throat> A world of war and a world of stumps. So let's pray as we begin our time together. Father, we all can envision a picture like this in the world around us and even in our own lives. Devastation. Chaos. But you promise something more. God, would you help us to see it this morning? Would you guide us as we look at your word and guide us in truth? In Jesus' name, amen. So we look at Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. And in your new pew Bibles, I think it's found on page 575. Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nourishing and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So as we started our Advent series last week, uh, and, and we, we said we're going to explore the good news that Isaiah saw, that, that, that he shared with the world. Many people call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it talks so much about Jesus. Our passage this morning is, is very similar to last week's passage, if you were here with us. Isaiah 2, as we saw last week, gave us the big picture, uh, an overall summary of the hope that was to come. God says he is going to do something new in Isaiah 2 and, and it will change the world forever. Everything would be different as a result. And we get to see more of, of this big idea in our passage today. Isaiah is speaking around 740 B.C., 700 plus years before the birth of Christ. Uh, most Jews thought that this passage was filled by King Hezekiah. Uh, King Hezekiah would have been a great-great-great-great-great-grandson of David. I can't remember how many he was. I'd have to think there. But um, he, he did some of the things that we see in Isaiah 11. And so many in that time thought, well, here he is. He, he is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah 11. But, right, but we know that that's not true The life of Hezekiah, the reign of Hezekiah, does not line up with a passage as amazing, as incredible, as unbelievable as this. Only the Messiah could fulfill what we see in Isaiah 11. And and so as we look at this passage, it's it's essential that we connect it to chapter 10. You see, chapter 10 is a story of judgment of righteous anger. And and it is judgment on the whole world, but it's especially judgment on Israel's leaders who have been so corrupt. They have accepted bribes. They have oppressed the poor. They have done what is evil for popularity's sake. They are the opposite of what God wanted for the king of his people. And God says in chapter 10, he will not have it any longer. It will not stay that way. And it says he's going to lay waste to the evildoers. He's going to lay waste to the evil kings who don't judge correctly, 
who don't do what is right. It says, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So remember, I said, have that image in mind of absolute devastation, of nothing but dead trees, nothing but stumps. And that's what God says will remain after his, his judgment. So that's, that's how chapter 10 ends, with the, the thickets all being cut down by the Lord with his mighty axe. Stumps and devastation. But, but, Isaiah is going to give us a vision of a new thing as we start chapter 11. A vision that God is going to do something different. A new thing is coming. And he's going to do that by giving us four images. Four images. They They are all with S's if you guys like the alliteration thing four S's for this morning. The first is a stump. David's line will be no more. The lines of all the kings of God's people will be disrupted. And that does happen. We know that happens when both Israel in the north and Judah in the south are destroyed. They won't have another king Because you have to have a kingdom to have a king, and there is no longer a kingdom. Israel is gone. Judah is gone. But, but there will be a new king. And so our second image goes from a stump to that of a shoot. And so as you think of that stump, visualize this little baby shoot coming, coming out of a thing that uh, they thought there was no life. It was dead. It was nothing but desolation. This little shoot springs forth. And as you think of that little shoot, I want you to think about how Jesus was born. Not as a rich and powerful man, but as a baby in the lowliest of circumstances. A little shoot that would grow. Picture this new shoot in the midst of that picture, that picture of desolation, of darkness and death, and, and then there's this green hint of life. And that shoot does symbolize hope. It does symbolize life. But it also symbolizes that Jesse's stump, David's father, is, is going to return. The line of kings will return. And so that's what we heard in Luke 1 when the angel came to Mary. The the angel says, he will be given the throne of his father, David. And from that throne, all will be right. He will judge correctly, full of the spirit of the Lord with all wisdom, power, and righteousness. He will rid the world of wickedness. You and I have a hard time envisioning a king who has not been corrupted by wealth and power and greed But the Messiah is truly a good king, worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our devotion. 
Okay, so we've had the stump, and we've had the shoot. The third image is of a serpent. And probably even just saying that word takes you back to Genesis, doesn't it? The, the one in whom there will always be enmity and war and hatred, the serpent. And so let me just tell you as a kid who grew up in Texas, I hate snakes. I, I, I hate them. I always tell people, it's, it's not a, necessarily a fear of them, although don't, I mean, I don't want to mess with them anyway, but it's, not, it's, it's beyond a fear of snakes. It's, it's moved from fear to hatred. It's a deep, deep hatred of snakes. And I, and I have plenty of bad stories of, of dealing with poisonous snakes in my life, especially as a kid. I'll, I'll share some of those for, for other times. There's tons of great sermon analogies with water moccasins and... Uh, copperheads and all kinds of things and rattlesnakes. I got plenty of stories. But uh, Texas does have a lot. Uh, Arizona has more than any state, in case you were curious. But Texas has a lot of poisonous snakes and, and more than Arizona has, by the way, because, you know, we're bigger. But there's more of them there. So you were taught as a kid to watch where you step. You don't just go running out somewhere which is weird being here in Illinois because they're not, you don't have to worry about picking up a piece of wood and getting bit by a snake, which you do there. But here you don't. It's, it's fantastic. We love that about this place. Um, but you always have to be on the lookout. Always have to be on the lookout. And so as I, as I hear this and read this, this Isaiah 11 passage, I, I have to tell you that the image of a baby playing with a cobra does something to me. Uh, the, the weaned child sitting in the den of adders, which is one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. My, my stomach gets upset. It turns a little bit, even thinking about a rattlesnake crawling on my kid's hand. I can't even visualize that. That's, that's tough. But that's the point, isn't it? The depth of the peace on earth that Christ will bring is beyond what you and I can envision. Lions and bears playing with rabbits and cattle, grazing on the same hay together, that's tough to picture. But it is symbolic of the earth being repaired and being renewed, the way things were supposed to be. The restoration of Eden, if you will. The serpent will be a friend once again. Wow. Okay, fourth image. The fourth image we get in this passage is that of the sea, of a sea. A, a, a vast ocean, if you will, represents the knowledge and wisdom of the kingdom of this Messiah. Not ignorance and hatred, not selfishness and greed. When I think of our world and the knowledge of God, it feels more like a desert. People doing what they want, what they think is right. But the opposite is the picture here. A, a sea bigger than you can look out and, 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 and envision. An ocean further than your eyes can see. That is the picture of, the, of what we will have with the knowledge of the Lord. Now, now last week we we said that some of, some of the prophecy of Isaiah 2 was, was fulfilled when Christ came. Advent, God with us, Emmanuel. Born in Bethlehem on a mission to bring salvation. 
But some of this, like we saw in Isaiah 2 last week, and, and what we'll see in this passage today, is a picture of more. It's more than just the first advent, the coming of the baby in Bethlehem. It's a, it's a vision of what Christ's kingdom will look like when he comes again. So there is peace now because of what Christ has come already and done. And then there's ultimately peace forevermore when he returns. The spirit of the knowledge of God is happening now. But this endless sea, this vision of that, uh, ultimately forevermore is still to come. I have to tell you that one of the, one of the things I personally struggle with um, is the desire to teach you something new, to preach something new. And so, so that means that during times like Christmas, Christmas Eve, and Easter, I spend a ton of time on, on sermons and thinking about sermons, and, 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 and I'll have an idea, and I'll start working on it, and I'll think, no, 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 that's not it. They've already heard something about that before. I, what else can I do? That, that, can't be, that can't be it. But here's what I decided this week. I'm here to talk about Jesus, and I hope you've heard about him before. before. I hope that's true. I, I'm here to tell you about the Bible, and I hope you've heard about that before. And that is the calling that I've been given. And so, of course, you know the stories of Christmas. Of course, you have heard Advent sermons on hope and peace and joy and goodwill towards men and, and all of the rest. You know, some of you, I, I just thought this week, you, you've, been, you've lived through 70 or more Christmases. What in the world could I possibly tell you about Christ coming and, and Christmas that you don't already know? I, I don't think that I can do that. And so I'm trying to be okay with that. <laughs> and recognize that I can remind you of what maybe you've already heard before and help you cling to what you already know to be true and, and, and is the greatest news in all of human history. And so I, I kept thinking about two different stories this week, we, stories that have, have shaped my life and helped me. Um, and, and they're stories that you may have heard before. And, and, it's, and if so, that's okay, because you and I need to be reminded of great stories. That's part of what Christmas is, being reminded of the greatest story ever told. And, and, and if these stories are new to you, then fantastic, because you need to hear them, and you need the beauty and the truth of hearing them for the first time. So I'm okay if you've heard this before. But I was reminded in my, uh, in, in my time this week of, uh, of, of World War I, again. And, and so we'll go back to that time, this awful time of human history. People had never been so destructive uh, as this time, and, and it was an absolute time of darkness. And so it was in the middle of this darkness that an incredible thing happened. British soldiers tell the story that they were sitting in their cold, wet trench day after day, and here they were on another evening after another day of death and killing, and destruction. And somebody remembered, hey, I think it's Christmas Eve. And, and they sat there and they thought, wow, that's an odd thing to be thinking about in this awful circumstance. And then the next thing they know, they hear Christmas carols coming from far away. And they realize the other side is singing Christmas carols. 
And some of the British soldiers started singing back, started singing to, with them. Oddly, they didn't know what to do. They just started singing these Christmas songs that they knew together. And, and the German soldier yelled, Merry Christmas, you Brits, in his broken English. And they yelled, Merry Christmas back. And another soldier, German soldier said, well, come on over here. Right. That's what everybody else thought, too. And, and so some smart aleck British guy said, you first. And so unbelievably, a German soldier stood up in no man's land and started walking. And he yelled, I'll come halfway. And a British officer then at that point, seeing an unarmed German soldier standing in the middle of the battlefield, said, okay. And he stood up and he walked halfway. And they just stared and looked at each other and didn't know what else to do. And then others started getting up and following and, and putting down guns and, and they just kept singing. And then the next thing you know, they started shaking hands and telling each other, Merry Christmas. And somebody said, well, hey, I, I've got a gift for you. And they pulled out a pack of cigarettes because that was all they had. And they shared cigarettes with one another. It's Christmas gifts. Peace for one night, celebrating Christmas together. And, and there were a few British soldiers who were former barbers in their, other, in their you know, previous life. And they, they said, you Germans haven't had haircuts. You guys look like you need haircuts. Can we give you one? And then they just sat down and started giving them haircuts. This is, the, this is a Christmas Eve celebration, World War I style. Because it was Europe, they decided, hey, in the morning, you guys want to play a game of soccer? And there it was. And some of you maybe have seen the movie called The Christmas Truce of, of this incredible game of soccer played on no man's land on Christmas Day between French and, or British and German soldiers who just 12 hours before have been trying to kill each other. And, and people started to hear about the Christmas truce and it totally shocked the world. And only the shoot of the stump of Jesse could bring such a night like that. But it only lasted a short time, and it was coming to an end. And, and one British soldier said he met a new friend who was a German. And he said, that in, in an odd way to end their conversation as, as new friends, he said, tonight there is peace, but tomorrow you will fight for your side and I will fight for mine. Good luck. What an odd thing. It only lasted for a night. The war would rage on for several more years after this night. And that may be what you experience at Christmas time. Hatred and war, family strife, conflict all around the world, greed, corruption, a country that you don't hardly recognize. Pain and hatred abound. I know that's how Henry Wadsworth Longfellow felt on Christmas. This is a man who knew pain. He had six children, one of whom died as an infant. One day he took a nap and he woke up to sounds of screams. And it was his wife, Fanny, who had been lighting candles and accidentally her dress caught on fire. And she was screaming because her whole 
dress was is engulfed in flames. So he wakes up, he does all that he can to try to put out the flames, and it, and it included severe injuries on him that w- sent him to the hospital. And ultimately, his wife did not survive her injuries from that accident. And, and Henry would be scarred both emotionally and physically forever as a result of that day. And it wasn't long after that that his oldest son, Charles, volunteered to fight in the midst of the Civil War. And he went off to war and, and was severely injured in December of 1863. Uh, a bullet hit him in his neck and it actually went through and it, 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 nicked, uh, it uh, nicked a vertebrae and he would be partially uh, paralyzed. He would survive. But his dad gets word of this awful injury and rushes to meet him in Virginia at the hospital where he was, where it would take months and months for him to be able to rehab and leave. And so this is the scene of Henry Wadsworth sitting in a hospital on Christmas Day, and he heard the bells of the church next door ringing bells on Christmas. A scarred and broken man he was, and those bells filled him with rage. And you probably have heard this story. And so he wrote out his anger. He was an author. He was a poet. You know the stanza. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And, and I think Wadsworth speaks what you and I can feel at Christmas or, or all throughout the year. The things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But as, as you remember the story, the bells did not stop. They persisted. And, and, and I can just kind of laugh as I think of Wadsworth hearing these bells over and over again. And he was so annoyed. But... But something happened. Something changed in him. Wadsworth knew Scripture. He knew enough Scripture to remember a, a, a passage like Isaiah 11, where there was a time of peace that was still to come. And so he remembered that as those bells kept chiming, the story isn't finished yet. Which led him to write the next stanza of that poem. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And and so I wish that every Christmas I could come up and I say, man, this is the time of year that we remember when all our problems went away. But that's not the story of Christmas yet. At Christmas, we celebrate that hope was born and that peace was born and that with Jesus there is peace. You can have a peace because of Christ that no one else without Christ can have. There is a shoot from the tribe of Jesse that has come and that kingdom will have no end Isaiah 11 has begun, and it has been partially fulfilled. 
But there is still more. Isaiah 11 will be fulfilled again and beyond and more and more. And so while we celebrate at Christmas, we are also reminded during this time that there is more to come. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. He is working, and someday soon, there will be nothing but justice and righteousness and faithfulness and peace and love. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is true, and it is coming, and it will be fulfilled. And so we do have hope, and there will be ultimate peace in Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we too often see a picture of this world as we saw in those pictures of Verdun. A charred, desolate world that has been poisoned to the very ground. But we know that out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot will grow, has grown, will continue to grow. And all will be made right, not, not just in us, but in the world. The curse of the ground will be removed. All striving will cease. Even our most hated enemy, the serpent, will be our friend. Only the shoot of Christ can bring this. Father, would you remind us of the hope we have today because of Christ, because what has been done for us, because of the price that has been paid, because of the freedom we can have, because we can be born again and know salvation. Would you help us to know that in this broken, hurting world? Would you also help us to keep hope for the ultimate peace that is still to come as we look forward to the days when Christ will return and make all things right. This is our ultimate hope. This is ultimate peace. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.